Well, good afternoon. Thought we'd continue on uh, in the same vein that we've been doing recently is uh, sharing some of the wisdom, some of the insight that Carl Jung shared with us in uh, his Yi Jing, in the uh, Bardo Thadul, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And now, the secret of the golden flower. This is a classic of Chinese uh, antiquity, lost mostly, maybe to both cultures even. But it's a wonderful piece translated by Richard Wilhelm. Uh, it is uh, tantric meditation. We won't go into it. I actually did a podcast about The Secret of the Golden Flower, the book itself. Uh, but I thought, since its value, its mystery, its uh, cachet being so rare, uh, Jung being once again in uh, in our uh, our current uh, well, he stood the test test of time, as it were. Right, um, Jung's philosophy is still. Uh, Still useful to us today. Uh, anyway, my opinion, obviously. So, on that note, I'm reading uh, Carl Jung's uh, commentary to The Secret of the Golden Flower, a book translated by his friend, Ricard Wilhelm. And uh, it's interesting. It's both uh, introduction, uh, fundamental concepts, uh, ideas of the way, uh, talking about consciousness, uh, the goal, uh, and his insights, his uh, opinions, and then finally he actually wrote a mem uh, memoriam to Wilhelm. So on that note, starting with the introduction to The Secret of the Golden Flower by, uh, well, translated by Richard Wilhelm uh, and the commentary by Carl Gustav Jung. Difficulties Encountered by a European in trying to understand the East. A thorough Westerner in feeling. I am necessarily deeply impressed by the strangeness of this Chinese text. It is true that some knowledge of Eastern religions and philosophies aids my intellect and intuition in understanding these ideas to a certain extent. Just as I can understand the paradoxes of primitive beliefs in terms of ethnology, or in terms of the comparative history of religions. Indeed, this is the Western way of hiding one's heart under the cloak of so-called scientific understanding. We do it partly because of the miserable vanité des savants, right? the miserable vanity of um, those that know, which fears and rejects with horror any sign of living sympathy and partly because a sympathetic understanding might permit contact with an alien spirit to become a serious experience. So-called scientific objectivity would have reserved this text for philosophical acuity of synologues and would have guarded it in jealousy from any other interpretation. But Ricard Wilhelm penetrated into the secret and mysterious vitality of Chinese wisdom too deeply 
to have allowed such a pearl of intuitive insight to disappear in the pigeonholes of the specialists. I am greatly honored that his choice of a psychological commentator has fallen upon me. This entails the risk, though, that this unique treasure will be swallowed by still another special science. Nonetheless, anyone seeking to minimize the merits of Western science and scholarship is undermining the main support of the European mind. Science is not, indeed, a perfect instrument, but it is a superior and indispensable one that works harm only when taken as an end in itself. The scientific method must serve. It errs when it usurps a throne. It must be ready to serve all branches of science because each, by reason of its insufficiency, has need of support from others. Science is the tool of the Western mind, and with it more doors can be opened than with bare hands. It is part and parcel of our knowledge and obscures our insight only when it holds that the understanding given by it is the only kind there is. The East has taught us another, wider, more profound, and higher understanding, that is, understanding through life. We know this way only vaguely, as a mere shadowy sentiment called from religious terminology, and therefore we gladly dispose of Eastern wisdom in quotation marks and relegate it to the obscure territory of faith and superstition. But in this way, we wholly misunderstand the realism of the East. This text, for instance, does not consist of exaggerated sentiments or overwrought mystical intuitions bordering on the pathological and emanating from the aesthetic cranks and recluses. It is based on the practical insights of highly evolved Chinese minds, which we have not the slightest justification for undervaluing. This assertion may seem bold, perhaps, and is likely to be met with disbelief, but this is not surprising, considering how little is known about the material. Moreover, the strangest of the material is so arresting that our embarrassment as to how and where the Chinese world of thought might be joined to ours is quite understandable. When, faith, when faced with this problem of grasping the ideas of the East, the unusual mistake of Western man is that of the student in Faust. Misled by the devil, he contemptuously turns his back on science, and carried away by Eastern occultism, takes over yoga practices, quite literally, and becomes a pitiable imitator. Theosophy is our best example of this mistake. And so he abandons the one safe foundation of the Western mind and loses himself in a mist of words and ideas which never would have originated in European brains and which can never be profitably grafted upon them. An ancient adept has said, 
if the wrong man uses the right means, the right means work in the wrong way. This Chinese saying, unfortunately all true, stands in sharp contrast to our belief in the right method, irrespective of the man who applies it. In reality, in such matters, everything depends on the man and little or nothing on the method. For the method is merely the path, the direction taken by a man. The way he acts is the true expression of his nature. If it ceases to be this, then the method is nothing more than an affectation, something artificially added, rootless and sapless, serving only the illegitimate goal of self-deception. It becomes a means of fooling oneself and of evading what may perhaps be the implacable law of one's being. This far removed from the earth-born quality and sincerity of Chinese thought. On the contrary, it is the denial of one's own being, self-betrayal to strange and unclean gods, a cowardly trick for the purpose of usurping psychic superiority. Everything, in fact, which is profoundly contrary to the meaning of the Chinese method. For these insights result from a way of life that is complete, genuine, and true in the fullest sense. They are insights coming from that ancient cultural life of China, which has grown consistently and coherently from the deepest instincts, and which, for us, is far, is forever remote and impossible to imitate. Western imitation of the East is doubly tragic in that it comes from an unpsychological misunderstanding, as sterile as are the modern escapades in Taos, the blissful South Sea Islands, and Central Africa, where primitivity is earnestly being played at while Western civilized man evades his menacing duties, his hic rotis hic salta. It's not a question of our imitating, or worse still, becoming missionaries for what is organically foreign, but rather a question of building up our own Western culture, which sickens with a thousand ills. This has to be done on the spot, and by the real European, as he is in his Western commonplaces, with his marriage problems, his neuroses, his social and political delusions, and his whole philosophical disorientation. We should do well to confess at once that, fundamentally speaking, we do not understand the complete detachment from the world of a text like this. Indeed, that we do not want to understand it. Have we, perhaps, an inkling that a mental attitude which can direct the glance inward to this extent, can bring about such detachment only because these people have so completely fulfilled the instinctive demands of their natures that little or nothing prevents them from viewing the invisible essence of the world. Can it be, perhaps, that the premise of such vision is liberation from, these, from those ambitions and passions which bind us to the visible world? 
And does, does not this liberation result from the sensible fulfillment of instinctive demands, rather than from the premature or fear-born repression of them? Is it that our eyes are opened to the spirit only when the laws of the earth are obeyed? Anybody who knows the history of Chinese culture and has also carefully studied the Yijing, that book of wisdom which for thousands of years has permeated all Chinese thought, will not pass over these questions lightly. He will, hold on here. He will know, moreover, that the views set forth in our text are nothing extraordinary from the Chinese point of view but are actually inescapable psychological conclusions. In our Christian culture, spirit, and the passion of the spirit, were for a long time the greatest values and the things most worth striving for. Only after decline of the Middle Ages, that is, in the course of the 19th century, when spirit began to degenerate into intellect, did a reaction set in against the unbearable dominance of intellectualism. This movement, it is true, at first committed the pardonable mistake of confusing intellect with spirit and blaming the latter for the misdeeds of the former. Intellect does in fact harm the soul when it dares to possess itself of the heritage of the spirit. It is in no way fitted to do this because spirit is something higher than intellect in that it includes not only the latter, but the feelings as well. It is a direction or principle of life that strives towards shining, suprahuman heights. In opposition to it stands the dark, the feminine, the earthbound principle, yin. With its emotionally and instinctiveness, with its emotionality and instinctiveness that reach far back into the depths of time and into the roots of uh, physiological continuity. Without a doubt, these concepts are purely intuitive insights, but one cannot very well dispense with them if one is trying to understand the nature of the human soul. China could not do without them because, as the history of Chinese philosophy shows, it has never gone so far from the central uh, psychic facts as to lose itself in a one-sided overdevelopment and overvaluation of a single psychic foundation. Therefore, the Chinese have never failed to recognize the paradoxes and the polarity inherent in what is alive. The opposites always balanced one another, a sign of high culture. One-sidedness, though it lends momentum, is a mark of barbarism. The reaction, which is now beginning in the West against the intellect in favor of feeling or in favor of intuition, seems to me a mark of cultural advance, a widening of consciousness beyond the two narrow limits of a tyrannical intellect. I have to wish to undervalue, I have no wish to undervalue the tremendous differentiation of Western intellect measured by it. Eastern intellect can be described as childish. Ooh, wow. Obviously, this has nothing to do with intelligence. 
if we should see succeed in elevating another or even a, a third psychic function to the dignity accorded intellect, then the West might expect to surpass the East by a very great margin. Therefore, it is sad indeed when the European departs from his own nature and imitates the, the East or affects it in any way. The possibilities open to him would be so much greater if he would remain true to himself and develop out of his own nature all that the East has brought forth from its inner being in the course of the centuries. In general, and looked at from the incurably external point of view of the intellect, it would seem as if the things so highly valued by the East were not desirable for us. Intellect alone cannot fathom at first the practical importance Eastern ideas might have for us, and that is why it can classify these ideas as philosophical and ethnological curiosities and nothing more. The lack of comprehension goes so far that even the learned synologues have not understood the practical application of the Yijing and therefore, and have therefore looked on the book as a collection of abstruse magic spells. So, two, modern psychology offers a possibility of understanding. Observations made in my practice have opened to me a quite new and unexpected approach to Eastern wisdom, but it must be well understood that I did not have a knowledge, however inadequate, of Chinese philosophy as a starting point. On the contrary, when I began my life work in the practice of psychiatry and psychotherapy, I was completely ignorant of Chinese philosophy, and only later did my professional experience show me that in my technique, I had been unconsciously led along that secret way which has been the preoccupation of the best minds of the East for centuries. This could be taken for a subjective fancy. One reason for my previous reluctance to publish anything on the subject, but Richard Wilhelm, that great interpreter of the soul of China, fully confirmed the parallel for me. Thus, he gave me the courage to write about a Chinese text which belongs entirely to the mysterious shadows of the Eastern mind. At the same time, and this is the extraordinary thing, in context, it is a living parallel to what takes place in the psychic development of my patients, none of whom is Chinese. In order to make this strange fact more intelligible to the reader, it must be pointed out that just as the human body shows a common anatomy over and above all racial differences, so too the psyche possess a common substratum transcending all differences in culture and consciousness. I have called this substratum the collective unconscious. This unconscious psyche, common to all mankind, does not consist merely of uh, contents capable of becoming conscious, but of latent dispositions towards certain identical reactions. Thus, the fact of the collective unconscious is simply the psychic expression of the identity of brain structure irrespective of all racial differences. This explains the analogy, sometimes even identity, between various myth motifs, motifs and symbols and the possibility of human beings making themselves mutually understood. The various lines of psychic development start 
from one common stock whose roots reach back into all the strata of the past. This also explains the psychological parallelisms with animals. Taken purely psychologically, it means that mankind has common instincts of imagination and of action. All conscious imagination and action have been developed with these unconscious archetypal images as their basis and always remain bound up with them, especially in this, the case when consciousness has not attained any high degree of clarity, that is, when in all its functions, it is more dependent on the instincts than on the conscious will, more governed by affect than by rational judgment. This condition ensures a primitive health of the psyche, which, however, immediately becomes lack of adaptation as soon as circumstances arise calling for a higher moral effort. Instincts suffice only for the individual embedded in nature, which, on the whole, remains always the same. An individual who is more guided by unconscious than by conscious choice tends, therefore, towards marked psychic conservatism. This is the reason the primitive does not change in the course of a thousand years, and it is also the reason why he fears everything strange and unusual. It might lead him to maladaptation, and thus to the greatest of psychic dangers to a kind of neurosis, in fact, a higher and wider consciousness, which comes about only through assimilation of the unfamiliar, tends towards autonomy, towards revolution against the old gods who are nothing other than those powerful, unconscious, archetypal images which have always held consciousness in thrall. The more powerful and independent consciousness and with it the conscious will, become the more the, the unconscious is forced into the background. The more powerful and independent consciousness, and with it the conscious will, become the more the con unconscious is forced into the background. When this happens, it is easily possible for the conscious structures to detach themselves from the unconscious archetypes. Gaining thus in freedom, they break the chains of mere instinctiveness and finally arrive at a state that is deprived of or contrary to instinct. Consciousness thus is torn from its roots and no longer able to appeal to the authority of the archetypal images. It has Promethean freedom, it is true, but also a godless hubris. It does indeed soar above the earth, even above mankind. But the danger of an upset is there, not for every individual to be sure, but collectively for the weak members of such a society, who then, again like Prometheus, are chained to the Caucasus by the unconscious. The wise Chinese would say in the words of the Jing, when Yang has reached its greatest strength, the dark power of Yin is born within its depth. 
for night begins at midday when Yang breaks up and begins to change to Yin. A physician is in a position to see this peripatia enacted literally in life. He sees, for instance, a successful businessman attaining all his desires, heedless of his peril, and then, having withdrawn from activity at the height of his success, falling in a short time into a neurosis, which changes him into a uh, querulous old woman, fastens him to his bed, and thus finally destroys him. The picture is complete even to the change from a masculine to a womanish attitude. In exact parallel to this is the legend of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, and indeed Caesarian madness in general. Similar cases of one-sided exaggeration in the conscious standpoint and of the corresponding yin reaction of the unconscious form no small part of the practice of psychiatrists in our time, which so overvalues the conscious will as to believe that where there is a will, there is a way. Not that I wish to detract in the least from the high moral value of conscious willing. Consciousness and will may well continue to be considered the highest cultural achievements of humanity. But of what use is a morality that destroys the human being? To bring will and capacity into harmony seems to me to be a better thing than morality. Morality at tout prix is a sign of barbarism right? at any price. More often wisdom is better, but perhaps I look at this through the professional glasses of the physician who has to mend the ills following in the wake of an exaggerated cultural achievement. Be that as it may, in any case, it is a fact that consciousness heightened by a necessary one-sidedness gets so far out of touch with the archetypes that a breakdown follows. Long before the actual catastrophe, the signs of error announced themselves as absence of instinct, nervousness, disorientation, and entanglement in impossible situations and problems. When the physician comes to investigate, he finds an unconscious, which is in complete rebellion against the values of the conscious, and which therefore cannot possibly be assimilated to the conscious, while the reverse, of course, is altogether out of the question. We are then confronted with an apparent irreconcilable conflict with which human reason cannot deal except by sham solutions or dubious compromises. If both these evasions are rejected, we are faced with the question as to what has become of the much-needed unity of personality, and with the necessity of seeing it. And here we come to the path traveled by the East from time immemorial. Quite obviously, The Chinese owes the finding of this path to the fact that he was never able to force the opposites in human nature so far apart that all conscious connection between them was lost. The Chinese has such an, an 
an all-inclusive consciousness because, as in the case of primitive mentality, the yea and the nay have remained in their original proximity. Nonetheless, he could not escape feeling the collusion of the opposites, and therefore he sought out that way of life in which he would be what the Hindu terms nirvana, free of the opposites. Our text is concerned with this way, and this same problem comes up with my patience also. There could be no greater mistake than for a Westerner to take up the direct practice of Chinese yoga, for it would be a matter of his will and his consciousness, and would only strengthen the latter against the unconscious, bringing about the very effect to be avoided. The neurosis would then simply be intensified, it cannot be sufficiently strongly emphasized that we are not Orientals and therefore have an entirely different point of departure in these things. It would also be a great mistake to assume that this is the path every neurotic must travel or that it is the solution to be sought at every stage of the neurotic problem. It is appropriate only in those cases where the conscious has reached an abnormal degree of development and has therefore diverged too far from the unconscious. This high degree of consciousness is in the condition sin qua non. Nothing would be more wrong than to wish to open this way to neurotics who are ill on account of an undue predominance of the unconscious. For the same reason, this way of development has scarcely any meaning before the middle of life normally between the ages of 35 and 40. In fact, if entered upon too soon, it can be decidedly injurious. As has been indicated, the reason for looking for a new way was the fact that the fundamental problem of the patient seemed insoluble. To me, unless violence was done to the one or the other side of his nature, I always worked with a temperamental conviction that fundamentally there are no insoluble problems. An experience justified me insofar as I have often seen individuals simply outgrow a problem which had destroyed others. This outgrowing, as I formerly called it, on further experience was seen to consist in a new level of consciousness. Some higher or wider interests arose on the person's horizon. And through this widening of his view, the insoluble problem lost its urgency. It was not solved logically in its own terms, but faded out when confronted with a new and stronger life tendency. It was not repressed and made unconscious, but merely appeared in a different light, and so did indeed become different. What, on a lower level, had led to the wildest conflicts and to panicky outbursts of emotion viewed from the higher level of the personality, now seemed like a storm in the valley, seen from a high mountain top. This does not mean that the thunderstorm is robbed of its reality, but instead of being in it, one is now above it. However, since we are both valley and mountain with respect to the psyche, it might seem a vain illusion to feel oneself beyond what is human. One certainly does feel the effect and is shaken and tormented by it, yet at the same time one is aware of a higher consciousness 
which prevents one from becoming identical with the effect. A consciousness which takes the effect objectively and can say, I know that I suffer. What our text says of indolence, indolence of which a man is conscious and indolence of which he is unconscious are a thousand miles apart, holds true in the highest degree of affect as well. Here and there, it happened in my practice that a patient grew beyond himself because of unknown potentialities. And this became an experience of prime importance to me. I had learned in the meantime that the greatest and most important problems of life are all in a certain sense insoluble. They must be so because they express the necessary polarity inherent in every self-regulating system. They can never be solved, but only outgrown. I therefore asked myself whether this possibility of outgrowing, that is, further psychic development, was not the normal thing, and therefore remaining st stuck in a conflict was what was pathological. Everyone must possess that higher level, at least in embryonic form, and in favorable circumstances must be able to develop this possibility. When I examined the way of development of those persons who quietly and as if unconsciously grew beyond themselves, I saw that their fates had something in common. The new thing came to them out of obscure possibilities, either outside or inside themselves. They accepted it and developed further by means of it. It seemed to me typical that some took the new thing from outside themselves, others from within, or rather that it grew into some persons from without and into others from within. But the new thing never came exclusively either from within or from without. If it arose from outside, it became a deeply subjective experience. If it arose from within, it became an outer event. In no case was it conjured into existence through purpose and conscious willing, but rather seemed to be born on the stream of time. We are so greatly tempted to turn everything into purpose and method that I deliberately express myself in very abstract terms in order to avoid causing a prejudice in one direction or another. The new thing must, be, must not be pigeonholed under any heading, for then it becomes a recipe to, to be applied mechanically, and it would again be a case of the right means in the hands of the wrong man. I have been deeply impressed with the fact that the new thing presented by fate seldom or never corresponds to conscious expectation. And still more remarkable, though, the new thing contradicts deeply rooted instincts as we have known them. It is a singularly appropriate expression of the total personality, an expression which one could not imagine in a more complete form. What did these people do in order to achieve the development that liberated them? As far as I could see, they did nothing. Wu Wei. But let things happen. As Master Lutzu teaches in our text, the light rotates according to its own law. If one does not give up one's ordinary occupation, the art of letting things happen, action through non-action, letting go of oneself as taught by Meister Eckhart, 
became for me the key opening the door to the way. We must be able to let things happen in the psyche. For us, this actually is an art of which few people know anything. Consciousness is forever interfering, helping, correcting, and negating, and never leaving the simple growth of the psychic process in peace. It would be simple enough if only simplicity were not the most difficult of all things. To begin with, the task consists solely in objectively observing a fragment of a fantasy in its development. Nothing could be simpler, and yet, right here, the difficulties begin. No fantasy fragment seems to appear, or yes, one does, but it is too stupid. Hundreds of good reasons inhibit it. One cannot concentrate on it. It is too boring. What would it amount to? It is nothing but, etc. The conscious mind raises prolific objections. In fact, it often seems bent upon blotting out the spontaneous fantasy activity in spite of real insight, even a firm determination on the part of the individual to allow the psychic processes to go forward without interference. Often, a veritable cramp of consciousness exists. If one is successful in overcoming the initial difficulties, criticism is still likely to start in afterwards and attempt to interpret the fantasy, to classify, to aestheticize, or to depreciate it. The temptation to do this is almost irresistible. After complete and faithful observation, free reign can be given to the impatience of the conscious mind. In fact, it must be given, else obstructing resistances develop. But each time the fantasy material is to be produced, the activity of consciousness must again be put aside. In most cases, the results of these efforts are not very encouraging at first. They usually consist of webs of fantasy with yield no clear knowledge of their origin or goal. Also, the way of getting at the fantasies is individually different. For many people, it is easiest to write them. Others visualize them, and others, again, draw and paint them with or without visualization. In cases of a high degree of conscious cramp, oftentimes the hands alone can fantasy. They model or draw figures that are often quite foreign to the conscious mind. These exercises must be continued until a cramp in the conscious mind is released, or, in other words, until one can let things happen, which was the immediate goal of the exercise. In this way, a new attitude is created, an attitude which accepts the non-rational and incomprehensible simply because it is what is happening. This attitude would be the be poison for a person who had already been overwhelmed by things that just happened. But it is the highest value for one who chooses, with an exclusively conscious critique, only the things acceptable to his consciousness from among the things that happen, and thus is gradually drawn out of the stream of life into stagnant backwater. At this point, the way traveled by the two types mentioned above seems to be separate. Both have learned to accept what comes to them, as Master Lu teaches, 
When occupations come to us, we must accept them. When things come to us, we must understand them from the ground up. One man will chiefly take what comes to him from without, and the other what comes from within, and according to the law of life, the one will have to take from the outside something he never could accept before from outside, and the other will accept from within, which would always have been excluded before. This reversal of one's being means an enlargement, heightening, an enrichment of the personality when the previous values are retained along with the change, provided, of course, that these values are not mere illusions. If the values are not retained, the individual goes over to the other side and passes from fitness to unfitness, from adaptation to lack of it, from sense to nonsense, and even from rationality to mental disturbance. The way is not without danger. Everything good is costly, and the development of the personality is one of the most costly of all things. It is a question of yea-saying to oneself and taking oneself as the most serious of tasks, of being conscious of everything one does and keeping it constantly before one's eyes in all its dubious aspects. Truly a task that taxes us to the utmost. The, the Chinese can fall back upon the authority of his entire culture. If he starts on the long way, he does what is recognized as being the best of all things he could do. But the Westerner who wishes to start upon this way, if he is truly serious about it, has all authority against him, intellectual, moral, and religious. That is why it is infinitely easier for man to imitate the Chinese way and desert the troublesome European, or else to seek again the way back to the medievalism of the Christian church and build up once more the European wall intended to separate true Christians from the poor heathen and the ethnographic curiosities dwelling outside. Aesthetic or intellectual flirtations with life and fate come to an abrupt end here. The step to higher consciousness leads us out and away from all rear guard cover and from all safety measures. The individual must give himself to the new way completely, for it is only by means of his integrity that he can go further, and only his integrity can guarantee that his way does not turn out to be an absurd adventure. Whether a person's fate comes to him from without or from within, the experiences and events of the way remain the same. Therefore, I need say nothing about the manifold outer and inner events, the endless variety of which I could never exhaust in any case. To do so, moreover, would be irrelevant to the text under discussion. But there is much to be said of the psychic states that accompany the further development. These psychic states are expressed symbolically in our text, and the very symbols which for many years have been familiar to me in my practice. The Fundamental Concepts 1. The Tao A great difficulty in interpreting this and similar texts for the European mind is due to the fact that the Chinese author always starts from the central point, from the point we could call his objective or goal. In a word, he begins with the ultimate insight, 
uh, he has set out to attain. Thus, the Chinese author begins his work with ideas that demand such a comprehensive understanding that a person of discriminating mind must feel that he would be guilty of ridiculous pretension, or even of talking utter nonsense, if he should embark on an intellectual discourse on the subtle psychic experiences of the greatest minds of the East. For example, our text begins, that which exists through itself is called the way. The Huiming Ching begins with the words, the subtlest secret of the Tao is human nature and life. It is characteristic of the Western mind that it has no concept for Tao. The Chinese character is made up of the character for head and that for going. Willem translates Tao by Xin, uh, meaning. Others translate it as Wei, providence, or even as God, as the Jesuits do. This shows the difficulty. Head can be taken as consciousness, and to go as traveling away. Thus, the idea would be to go consciously, or the conscious way. This agrees with the fact that the light of heaven, which dwells between the eyes as the heart of heaven, is used synonymously with Tao. Human nature and life are contained in the light of heaven, and according to Lui Huang Yang, are the most important secrets of the Tao. Now, light is the symbolical equivalent of consciousness, and the nature of consciousness is expressed by analogies with light. The Huiming Jing is introduced with the verse, If thou wouldst complete the diamond body with no outflowing, diligently heat the roots of consciousness and life, kindle light in the blessed country ever close at hand, and there, hidden, let thy true self always dwell. These verses contain a sort of alchemistic introduction a method or way of creating the diamond body, which is also meant in our text. Heating is necessary. That is, there must be an intensification of consciousness in order that the dwelling place of the spirit may be illumined. But not only consciousness, life itself must be intensified. The union of these two produces conscious life. According to the Hui Ming Ching, the ancient sages knew how to bridge the gap between consciousness and life because they cultivated both. In this way, the Shelly, the immortal body, is melted out, and in this way, the great Tao is completed. If we take the Tao to be the method or conscious way by which to unite what is separated, we have probably come close to the psychological content of the concept. In any case, the separation of consciousness from life cannot very well be understood to mean anything but what I have described above as an aberration or a duration uh, of consciousness. Without doubt, also, the realization of the opposite hidden in the unconscious i.e. the reversal, signifies reunion with the unconscious laws of being. And the purpose of this reunion 
is the attainment of conscious life, or expressed in Chinese terms, the bringing about of the Tao. Two, the circular movement and the center. As has already been pointed out, the union of opposites on a higher level of consciousness is not a rational thing, nor is it a matter of will. It is a psychic process of development which expresses itself in symbols. Historically, this process has always been represented in symbols, and today the development of individual personality still presents itself in symbolical figures. This fact was revealed to me in the following observations. The spontaneous fantasy products we mention above become more profound and concentrate themselves gradually around abstract structures which apparently represent principles. True Gnostic archai. Or archai. When the fantasies are chiefly expressed in thoughts, the results are intuitive formulations of dimly felt laws or principles, which at first tend to be dramatized or personified. We shall, look, we shall come back to these again later. If the fantasies are expressed in drawings, symbols appear which are chiefly of the so-called mandala type. Mandala means a circle, more especially a magic circle, and this symbol is not only to be found all through the East, but also among us. Mandalas are amply represented in the Middle Ages. The early Middle Ages are especially rich in Christian mandalas, and for the most part show Christ in the center with the four evangelists, or their symbols, at the cardinal points. This conception must be a very ancient one. For the Egyptians represented Horus with his four sons in the same way. It is known that Horus, with his four sons, has close connections with Christ and the four evangelists. Later, there is to be found an unmistakable and very interesting mandala in Jacob Bohem's book on the soul. This later mandala, it is clear, deals with a psychocosmic system strongly colored by Christian ideas. Bohem calls it the philosophical eye, or the mirror of wisdom, which obviously means a summa of secret knowledge. For the most part, the mandala form is that of a flower, a cross, or a wheel, with a distinct tendency towards quadripartite structure. One is reminded of the tetrakeys, the fundamental number in the Pythagorean system. Mandalas of this sort are also to be found in the sand paintings used in the ceremonies of the Puebla and Navajo Indians. But the most beautiful mandalas are, of course, those in the East, especially those belonging to the Tibetan Buddhism. The symbols of our text are represented in these mandalas. I've also found mandalas drawing among the mentally ill, and indeed, among persons who certainly did not have the, eye, the least idea of any of the connections we have discussed. Among my patients, I have come across cases of women 
who did not draw mandalas, but who danced them instead. In India, this type is called mandala nritya, or mandala dance. And the dance figure uh, expresses the same meanings as the drawings. My patient can say very little about the meaning of the symbols, but are fascinated by them and find them in some way or uh, other expressive and effective with respect to their psychic condition. Our text promises to reveal the secret of the golden flower of the Great One. The golden flower is the light, and the light of heaven is the Tao. The golden flower is a mandala symbol, which I have often met with in the material brought me by my patients. It is drawn either seen from above as a regular geometric ornament, or as a blossom growing from a plant. The plant is frequently a structure in brilliant, fiery colors growing out of a bed of darkness and carrying the blossom of light at the top, a symbol similar to that of the Christmas tree. A drawing of this kind also expresses the origin of the golden flower. For according to the Huiming Ching, the germinal vesicle, is nothing other than the yellow castle, the heavenly heart, the terrace of life, the square inch field of the square foot house, the purple hall of the city of jade, the dark pass, the space of former heaven, the dragon castle at the bottom of the sea. It is also called the border region of the snow mountains, the primal pass, the realm of the greatest joy the land without boundaries, and the altar upon which consciousness and life are made. If a dying man does not know this germinal vesicle, says the Hui Ming Ching, he will not find the unity of consciousness and life in a thousand births, nor in ten thousand eons. The beginning, in which everything is still one, and which therefore appears as the highest goal, lies at the bottom of the sea in the darkness of the unconscious. In the geminal vesicle, consciousness and life, human nature and life, Ming, are still a unity, inseparably mixed like the sparks in the refining furnace. Within the geminal vesicle is the fire of the ruler. All the sages began their work at the geminal vesicle. Note the fire analogies. I know a series of European mandala drawings in which something like a plant seed surrounded by its coverings is shown floating in water, and from the depth below, fire penetrating the seed makes it grow and causes the formation of a large golden flower from within the germinal vesicle. This symbolism refers to a sort of alchemical process of refining, ennobling, darkness gives birth to light, out of the lead of the water region grows the noble gold, what is unconscious becomes conscious in the form of a process of life and growth. Hindu Kundalini Yoga affords a complete analogy. In this way, the union of consciousness and life takes place. When my patients produce these mandala pictures, it is, of course, not through suggestion. Similar pictures were being made long before I knew their meaning or their connection with the practice of the East. 
which at that time were wholly unfamiliar to me. The picture came quite spontaneously and from two sources. One source is the unconscious, which spontaneously produces such fantasies. The other source is life, which, if lived with complete devotion, brings an intuition of the self, the individual being. An awareness of the individual self is expressed in the drawing. While the unconscious extracts devotedness to life, for quite in accord with the Eastern conception, the mandala symptom, a symbol, is not only a means of expression, but works in effect. It reacts upon its maker uh, very ancient magical effects lie hidden in this symbol, for it derives originally from the enclosing circle, the charmed circle, the magic of which has been preserved in countless folk customs. The image has the obvious purpose of drawing uh, a magical furrow around the center, a sacred precinct of the innermost personality in order to prevent flowing out or to guard by apotropaic means against deflections through external influences. The magical practices are nothing but the projections of psychic events, which are here applied in reverse to the psyche, like a kind of spell on one's own personality. That is to say, by means of these concrete performances, the attention, or better said, the interest, is brought back to an inner sacred domain, which is the source and goal of the soul which contains the unity of life and consciousness. The unity once possessed has been lost and now must be found again. The unity of these two, life and consciousness, is the Tao whose symbol would be the central white light, compared to Bardot Thadul, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. This light dwells in the square inch, or in the face, that is, between the eyes. It is the image of the creative point, a point having intensity without extension. Thought of a connected, thought of as connected, with the space of the square inch, the symbol for that which has extension. The two together make the Tao, human nature, sing and consciousness, wait, are expressed in light symbolism and are therefore intensity, while life, Ming, could coincide with an extensity. The first of the character of the Yang principle, the latter of the Yin. The above-mentioned mandala of a somnambulist girl, 15 and a half years old, whom I, I had under observation 30 years ago, shows in its center a spring of life energy without extension, which in its emanations collides directly with a contrary space principle, as a perfect analogy with the fundamental idea of the Chinese text. The enclosure, or succumambulatio, is expressed in our text by the idea of a circulation. 
The circulation is not merely motion in a circle, but means, on the other hand, the marking off of the sacred precinct, and, on the other, fixation and concentration. The sun wheel begins to run. That is to say, the sun is animated and begins to take its course. Or, in other words, the Tao begins to work and to take over the leadership. Action is reversed into non-action. All that is peripheral is subjected to the command of what is central. Therefore, it is said, movement is only another name for mastery. Psychologically, this circulation would be the turning in a circle around oneself, whereby, obviously, all sides of the personality become involved. They cause the poles of light and darkness to rotate, that is, day and night alternate. Uh, there's a German quote that I'm going to totally destroy, so I apologize. Esch wegschert paradischel mit tiefer Nacht. <laughs> Thus, I apologize. Thus, the circular movement also has the moral significance of activating all the light and the dark forces of human nature, and with them, all the psychological opposites of whatever kind they may be. It is self-knowledge by means of self-incubation, Sanskrit tapas, a similar, a similar archetypal concept of a perfect being is that of the platonic man, round all sides and uniting within himself the two sexes. One of the finest parallels to what has been said here is the description of his central experience given by Edward Maitland, the collaborator of Anna Kingsford. He had discovered that during reflection on an idea, related ideas become visible, so to speak in a long series apparently reaching back to their source, which to him was the divine spirit. By means of concentration on this series, he tried to penetrate to their origin. He says, I was absolutely without knowledge or expectation when I yielded to the impulse to make the attempt. I simply experimented on faculty, being seated at my writing table, the while in order to record the results as they came, and re resolved to retain my hold on my outer and circumferential consciousness. No matter how far towards my inner and central consciousness I might go, for I knew not whether I should be able to regain the former if I once quit my hold of it, or the to recollect the facts of the experience. At length, I achieved my object, though only by a strong effort, the tension occasioned by the endeavor to keep both extremes of the consciousness in view at once being very great. Once well started on my quest, I found myself traversing a succession of spheres or belts, the impression produced being that of mounting a vast ladder stretching from the circumference towards the center of the system which was at once my own system, the solar system, and the universal system, the three systems being at once diverse and identical. Presently, by a supreme and what I felt must be a final effort, I succeeded in polarizing the whole 
of the convergent rays of my consciousness into the desired focus. At, and at the same instant, as if through the sudden ignition of the rays thus fused into a unity, I found myself confronted with a glory of unspeakable whiteness and brightness, and of a luster so intense as well nigh to beat me back. But though feeling that I had to explore further, I resolved to make an assurance doubly sure by piercing, if I could, the almost blinding luster, and seeing what it enshrined. With a great effort, I succeeded, and the glance revealed to me that which I had felt must be there. It was the dual form of the sun, the unmanifest made manifest, the unformulate formulate, the individuate individuate, God as the Lord, proving through his duality that God is substance as well as force, love as well as will, feminine as well as masculine, mother as well as father. He found that God is two in one like man. Besides this, he noticed something that our text also emphasizes, namely suspension of breathing. He says, ordinary breathing stopped and was replaced by an internal respiration, as if by breathing of a distinct personality within and other than the physical organism. He took this being to be the eteklechi of Aristotle and the inner Christ of the Apostle Paul, the spiritual and substantial individuality engendered within the physical and phenomenal personality, the representing, therefore, the rebirth of a man on a plane transcending the material. This genuine experience contains all the essential symbols of our text. The phenomenon itself is the vision of light, is an experience common to many mystics, and one that is undoubtedly of the greatest significance. Because in all times and places, it appears as the unconditional thing, which unites in itself the greatest energy and the profoundest meaning. Hildegard of Bingen, an outstanding personality, quite apart from her mysticism, expresses herself about her central vision in a similar way. Since my childhood, she says, I have always seen a light in my soul, but not with the outer eyes, nor through the thoughts of my heart. Neither do the five outer senses take part in this vision. The light I perceive is not of a local kind, but is much brighter than the cloud which bears the sun. I cannot distinguish height, breadth, or length. What I see or learn in such a vision strays long in my memory. I see, I hear, and know in the same moment. I cannot recognize any sort of form 
in this light, although I sometimes see in another light that is known to me as the living light. While I am enjoying the spectacle of this light, all sadness and sorrow vanish from my memory. I knew, I know of a few individuals who are familiar with this phenomenon from personal experience. As far as I've been able to understand it, the phenomena seems to do with an acute state of consciousness, an intensive as it is as intensive as it is abstract, a detached consciousness, see below, which as Hildegard uh, pertinently remarks, brings up to consciousness regions of psychic events ordinarily covered with darkness. And so I'll read the note. Such experiences are genuine, but their genuineness does not prove that all the conclusions or convictions forming their context are necessarily sound. Even in the cases of lunacy, one comes across perfectly valid psychic experiences. The above note was added by Jung to the first English translation. So I'll continue on. The fact that the general bodily sensations disappear during such an experience suggests that their specific energy has been withdrawn from them and apparently gone towards heightening the clarity of consciousness. As a rule, phenomenon is spontaneous, coming and going on its own initiative. It affects, its effects is astonishing in that it almost always brings about a solution of psychic complications and therefore frees the inner personality from emotional and intellectual entanglements, creating thus unity of being, which is universally felt as liberation. The consciousness will not can, will, the consciousness will, the conscious will cannot attain such a symbolic unity because the conscious is partisan in this case. Its opponent is the collective unconscious which does not understand the language of the conscious. Therefore, it is necessary to have the magic of the symbol which contains those primitive analogies that speak to the unconscious. The unconscious can be reached and expressed only by symbol, which is the reason why the process of individuation can never do without the symbol. The symbol is the primitive expression of the unconscious, but at the same time, it is also an idea corresponding to the highest intuition produced by consciousness. The oldest mandala drawing known to me is a paleolithic so-called sun wheel, recently discovered in Rhodesia. It also based on the principle of four. Things reaching so far back in human history naturally touch upon the deepest layers of the unconscious and affect the latter where conscious speech shows itself to be quite impotent. Such things cannot be thought up but must grow again from the forgotten depths. If they are to express the deepest insights of consciousness and the loftiest intuitions of the spirit. Coming from these depths, they blend 
together the uniqueness of present-day consciousness with the age-old past life. 